and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm thrilled you could join us today. We are going to be talking about becoming a memory holder and what that means. And I'll be introducing you to our guest here shortly. But first, I just want to give a shout out to a couple of support groups that I do. One is Arthur's Memory Cafe that meets the second and fourth Wednesday of each month. The other is the Caregiver Connect program, which is an in-person program at the Shoreview Community Center here in Minnesota, which also provides respite the last Wednesday of each month from 10 to 1130. So if any of those are something of interest, please check them out. I would also urge you to check out all our free resources on alzheimerspeaks.com. And don't forget to check out the public events there as well. Many of them are virtual, so no matter where you are, you can participate in. And uh, and then last, I just want to encourage you to also go to DementiaMap.com, which is a global resource directory, which is just filled with gads of information and is really easily accessible. So let's go ahead and introduce you to our guest today. Well, Francisca, I am so excited to have you on the show with us today. So first of all, thank you for uh, taking the time to be with us. I always ask my guests to introduce themselves because my audience is always eager to hear a little bit of background. And I know that you can tell that story much better than I. So if you don't mind introducing yourself, I'd appreciate it. Sure. My name is Francesca and I am a community doula and a death literacy advocate. So I have worked as a doula in a couple of different realms. I started out supporting people through pregnancy, birth, and postpartum, and I still do a little bit of that work, but not as much. And then I broadened my offerings to include supporting people with emotional support and information and a compassionate presence through the end of life and grief as well. Additionally, I'm a hospice volunteer And I have published three, four publications about grief and loss. And I'm a published researcher with the Vermont Conversation Lab as well. Wonderful. Well, we've got a lot to dive into um, on that. One of the questions I always ask everyone who, who comes on the show is, have they been personally touched by dementia? And so I'm wondering if you have been touched, you know, within your own family or circle of friends. Yes, definitely. I have. And in my family, I've had three close relatives that have lived with the disease. And it's really interesting, as I'm sure you know, and your audience is familiar with dementia presents differently for each person. So I've had two grandmothers who have lived with dementia and who both recently died within a couple of months. And Also, my father's living with a form of dementia as well. Wow, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. Um, 
Well, before we kind of jump off the cliff, I, I want to have you define what an end of life doula is, because I'm sure that there are people out there going, what the heck is that? Um, we're hearing much more about it, but I think there's still a big gap in the public that knows what it is and, and how that can help them. Thank you. I agree. I feel like when I first became a doula, which was 14 years ago, not that many people were aware of doula support for pregnancy and birth and postpartum. And now that has shifted and evolved and more people are familiar with that kind of support and not as many with the end of life care that we provide. So in my mind, the way that I categorize it and sort of organize it is as a doula, whether I'm supporting people through beginning of life or end of life, I focus on planning, preparing, and processing with them. Those are the main priorities that seem to be most beneficial and pressing for people really as I support them. So I'm a private practice doula in the sense that I, I run a business and people can hire me privately. I work as an additional complementary layer. So alongside hospice and alongside palliative care or family medicine, depending on what people have established in their own lives. And I can come up with a calendar and a schedule that works well for my client and also works well for me, which is part of the beauty of working outside of the medical care system. I have more flexibility in that sense. So I can really assess what does this particular person need, this potential client? Can I meet those needs? Do I have the availability? And then within my practice, I focus a lot on planning. So it could be coming up with end-of-life care wishes with them. It might be reassessing their legal forms. So their options and preferences for end-of-life care on an advanced directive. I can support people through revising and updating or creating them for the very first time. I can provide respite care for loved ones who are exhausted and need to be able to take a break for themselves. I also really love to work with people on remembrance and legacy projects. So that might be letters for their loved ones. It could be a life review. It could be special cards that people could open at certain milestones, potentially after my client is deceased, or some other personalized, customized way that they can reflect back and sort of capture their life and messages that they want for their loved ones to receive and to be able to hold on to, even in their absence. Now, you had mentioned that not only are you a doula, but you are a layer. What's a, what's a layer? Like a, a layer, like L-A-Y-E-R, an additional, you know, layer of support. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> I didn't know if that was something else I had. No, no, not making up a, a cool new term or anything. <laughs> Just... Okay. Well, it's always good. Always good to clarify. How do you see yourself different from the typical hospice and palliative care? Well, I am a hospice volunteer as well, so I wear that hat, and that's really distinct and different from my doula work in the sense that I would not charge for that service, of course, and I work within the hospice team. When I operate as a doula, I'm working outside of that, but sometimes it is a hospice provider who recognizes that a client could use additional care, and, and that's how I become that extra layer that we, that we place in there. Um, or I work alongside palliative care. And once my client has 
once we've gone through the process of developing a contract together and signing that contract, often I will have them sign permission for me to have direct communication with their care providers because that can really ease a burden for people. I've already been able to establish collaborative relationships locally with people who work in the field. And so I can give them updates and I can become some eyes and ears in addition to their visits that they're having with people. And I can schedule longer visits. I could schedule more frequent visits. And unlike hospice care, where there's a lot of documenting and paperwork, I really don't have those constraints on my time. Okay. Yeah, that paperwork can get a little overwhelming. Definitely. I mean, it's so important and it takes up a lot of the time that I feel like most people who get into end-of-life care work, they want to be bedside. They want to be having those meaningful conversations and be a listening ear and be supporting people through navigating different resources and options, having deep conversations. And, and there is some of that, but I think that a lot of us really yearn for it. And so I feel quite liberated as a doula to be able to focus in on those topics with my clients. Yeah, I, I think there's a huge need to be more relationship-based throughout all of healthcare. And I think a lot of the micromanaging has stripped that away. And it's it's really destroyed on a lot of levels people coming in to, yes. to care because yeah. it's it's not what they it's not what they want to do. And again, it's very important, but sometimes I think we we overkill the written word and we kind of push the person to the side in terms of their emotional needs, which to me are are, are critical piece of, of mm -hmm. care. Absolutely. Um, would you mind sharing a little more information about, you, you know, your own family experience with dementia? And you said, basically, you know, you have three people, were they all similar? Were they different types of dementia? And, um, and then we kind of meld into how your tools and skills have have helped, I would imagine, in those situations. Yeah, it's it's been really eye-opening for me and really heart-opening as well to see family members living with the disease and trying to cope with it and then seeing how it manifests differently in different people. So if I were going to sort of um, just give highlights without going into a lot of particulars about each person, say that for one person, short-term memory was lost in a really pronounced way, but that person could still access past memories. For another person, it was really very textbook and it was gradual, but a really steady decline in the ability to access short-term memories, but then also long-term memories. And then to the point of not really being able to recognize a lot of family members. And then to the point of even though this person had been incredibly independent always, very self-determined, that it was no longer safe for that person to remain at home. And what a difficult transition that was for, for everyone to be able to um, come to the point of saying, you know, for this person's safety, we really need to come up with a different situation. And, um, and, and that person really wasn't able to recognize many loved ones near the end, but but did retain her love of music and dancing. And the last memory I have with that grandmother, before she moved away to go to her care home, we were at another family member's 
reception, wedding reception, and we were out on the dance floor and she was just in her element and was so lit up by that and was fully herself in that moment. And it was all just about the present and presence and having fun and enjoying it. And I don't think that she could have said who I was or how we knew each other or any of our past memories that we had shared. But that moment was really powerful. And, and I carry that with me as the last time that I was able to physically be with her. And then, um, you know, other things that have come up for family members would be aphasia and also abilities to complete some of the daily tasks that were really ingrained in muscle memory. And it's so it's so interesting to see a person not be able to remember how to, you know, put on a belt, for example, or something like that, or figure out how to put together a meal or even how to eat a meal any longer. So many different symptoms, lots of challenges, but also glimmers of who they are always, like at their core, there's still that shining through for each of them. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-494-8310. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-494-8310. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-494-8310. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Wonderful. Do you mind explaining what aphasia is to our audience? Because again, that might be a new word to, to many out there. I mean, I feel like you might be better suited if, if you would like to describe it in your role, but I'm, I'm happy to as well. Yeah, I, I just kind of sum it up with, uh, you know, the jumbling of words and not being able to to connect words to what they want to say. So it, it's interesting how someone can spit out a sentence and use words and they make absolutely, if you wrote them down, they would make absolutely no sense. But it has the rhythm and the cadence of a yeah. sentence. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And and yet I have found with people with aphasia that I can understand what they're trying to communicate, even though the words aren't accurate mm -hmm. um, by kind of sensing, like you said, the cadence and the feel behind mm -hmm. what it is. Um, and, and it's fascinated me. Um, I do a, a panel called Dementia Chats, and we used to have a, a gal on there by the name of Susan Sutchin, and she, she had aphasia. And at times in the beginning, she was kind of embarrassed about it, but we all understood her we all, mm -hmm. and she was just such the life of the party. I mean, she brought so much joy because um, she was just such a passionate person and, and that was never, ever lost. Oh, and, that's wonderful. And I, and I think sometimes people get really scared of mm -hmm. aphasia and they automatically think, well, I can't understand that. And, and it's because yeah. they're really not listening because they're letting their fear take over that it's different. It's mm -hmm. kind of like a foreign language in some ways. Absolutely. And you can decipher 
some of it, even if it is a language that sounds foreign to you. And like you mentioned, when people are aware of that, it can be, I think it can be even more of a struggle. It can cause even more suffering if they really want to be able to find a word and they can't find the word and they're struggling and you see them struggling. And then sometimes that shifts into a phase where there is little awareness, very little awareness, if any, that the words aren't making sense and in their own minds and how it sounds to them might be totally fine. And, and they don't feel like there's any reason for somebody to not understand. Well, that's a great point. That's a great point. And mm -hmm. we all like to be understood and we all know what it feels like to feel like we're not being understood and how frustrating that is. And, and that is the one thing with dementia that people say over and over again is when they are frustrated or feeling anxiety, um, their symptoms increase. Yes. And when there's a calm presence, when we can just make somebody feel welcome, um, that will calm things down and put it on a more even keel and typically reduce symptoms. And Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that with that awareness of deficits come nerves. And if you can soothe the nerves by being patient, by being quiet, you know, sometimes not just jumping in to try to fix the language or figure out the sentence, just giving it a little bit more time. And, you know, when you have the chance to always allow the person just more time and space and just another breath and not have it be a, a more stressful situation than it needs to be because it already is for them often. Yeah. And a lot of times people do jump in and I can't understand you mm -hmm. speak more clearly. That doesn't even make any more sense. Well, I mean, think of how that made you feel just listening to me talk to you like that. I, exactly. You know, it, it just kind of gets the hairs up on, on your uh, arms and, and it makes you feel really uncomfortable. And mm -hmm. a person with dementia, I think is even more in tune to that because they've, they've lost other skill sets. And, and then I think other senses kick in even at a higher pace. And again, I'm not a researcher at all, but just, you know, my mom lived with the disease for 30 years. And um, since 2009, I've been knee deep in, in this with Alzheimer's Speaks. And that's just been my, my personal experience with that. So thank you for that. I think that'll help a lot, a lot of people listening today in understanding what it is and how to deal with it, I think is even, even more important. Um, it kind of goes back to those little tests. Sometimes they'll have them written and the words won't be in the right order, but you can read and you, you can understand what it's saying. Right. Everyone's amazed when they're able to do that. Aphasia, I think, can be the same thing mm -hmm. if we relax and we aren't stressed out trying to force something to be the way it's always been. Right. And we listen for the emotion. We listen for the mm -hmm. tone. We pick up on those clues. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So with your own family members and stuff, was there anything, you know, in particular you did to, to honor their life, given the work that you do? Absolutely. With one grandmother who I was very close with growing up. She was my next door neighbor and has always been a source of inspiration for me as a woman, establishing myself in a field and finding the confidence to do that. She did that. And in her own time, it was much more challenging for her to not only be a housewife, which was the expectation then, but she decided to be an entrepreneur and to follow that dream. And there was a lot of resistance. So 
we worked together at her gift shop and she taught me so much and she really empowered me. And then she developed the disease and gradually lost connection with those memories. So I felt like as a granddaughter, as a loved one, you know, I become a memory holder and what they forget, I retain and hold on to because I think there's this balancing that we do with people with dementia of releasing our attachment to the past and to memories while we're with them in our full presence, but also hanging on to the knowledge that they lived this whole life and that they've had all of these experiences and these memories and these moments and that we can hang on to that even as they lose contact with it. I think both are really important to hold. So with her, my second book that I published is a picture book called Map of Memory Lane. And I dedicated it to her and I wanted to create a story for children and give adults some language about how to enter into these difficult conversations. So it doesn't really talk about a particular person dying, but it's based off a conversation I had with that grandmother a long time ago. And we were just drying dishes at her sink. And I looked up at her and the sun was sort of hitting her face and, and I could see that she had some wrinkles on her face. And I said, Graham, are you gonna die? And this was forever ago. She literally just died a couple months ago. And she sort of threw her head back and chuckled. And she said, well, yes, I, I will someday die. She said, but, but that's okay. And I've lived a good life and I feel good about the life I've lived. And it was a very simple but very comforting answer to a really big question right out of the blue from a little kid. And so that's how my story opens. But the grandchild in this story says, Nana, will you live forever? And so Nana says, no, I will not live forever, but I will live forever in your memories. And whenever you're missing me, you can go to memory lane. And so the book then carries us through a number of their favorite moments, and that would be building their memory lane. So for example, they had dessert for dinner, and there's a spread about that, or splashing in the puddles, and making up their own stories where the grandchild is the main character. Very sweet, very simple moments that they've shared that are very profound. And I have an activity book as well that goes with that, that people can print off and they can design and create their own map of memory lane that is inspired by a particular relationship. Could be with a pet, could be with a person, could be with somebody who's living, could be with somebody who's ill, could be with somebody who has already died in honor of that relationship and capturing those memories. So that was a gift that I did in honor of that grandmother and helps me carry myself through this time of grief after losing her because that is a lasting symbol of our relationship. So it really does make my heart smile. And with my other grandmother, I'm actually working, I'm finalizing another picture book manuscript that has to do more with her life journey and her immigration story and how we celebrate our family heritage through making food and empanadas in particular. So I'm finalizing that picture book and that will be a way that I can honor her and, and that story, which will reach people more broadly in different ways about connection and family and rituals and traditions and celebrations, but also thoughtfulness and kindness. So, um, so yeah, those are ways. And, and when that grandmother, who I called my Lela for Abuela, when she was in the beginning stages of dementia and I was recognizing that she was starting to 
well, actually, at that point, I was just worried that she was going to lose access to older memories. I did a series of recorded interviews with her, and I asked her questions about her early years, about her immigration experience, and about things like, how do you make empanadas? And at that point, you can tell in these recordings, she she does struggle a little bit to find certain words, but it's a beautiful way of me being able to still now, after she just died a couple months ago, be able to hear her voice still and hear her stories and have that in a lasting form, which again is helping me through this time of grieving her loss. Yeah, those recordings are so important. Um, I have some of my mom and my audience has heard this a zillion times, but I can have the worst day of my life and go listen to one of those recordings and everything just melts away. And it's like, life is good. You know, it, it just gets you heart centered of what's really important um, really fast. And so I think sometimes people think when they're recording things or putting together things for reminiscing, it's just for that person, but it's such a bigger, bigger impact um, with everybody around, which is pretty dang beautiful with that. So um, I love your your children's book and that you've got that activity book where they can work through something as well. That's really cool. Um, I just wrote a children's book myself called Betty the Bald Chicken, Lessons in How to Care. And, you know, it really gets people thinking about how do they want to be cared for? How do they care for themselves? Um, and how do they treat others? Um, now and in the future. And I, I think that's a conversation too that we don't have. Like everyone's afraid of of dying, but we're all gonna die. <laughs> and when your when your grandma answered, well, yeah, you know, someday, but you know, not right now. You know, I'm not planning on leaving. I mean, what a what a peaceful but powerful answer that was um to just say, you know none of us are getting out of here alive without saying it that way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. She didn't kind of dismiss my question. She didn't change the topic or try to distract me with a cookie or something. She answered me honestly without overwhelming me with too much information. It was just right. And what it did was it, it assured me that if I have other big questions, I could ask her. Yeah, that it was comfortable, it was acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, when I was growing up, my mom used to bring us to wakes and funerals as kids. And she actually got scolded by her friends. Mm -hmm. They're too young. They don't need to see this. And my mom was always adamant mm -hmm. about sharing all of life. You know, this shouldn't be hidden. You know, this is a normal part of life and they shouldn't be afraid of it. And um, and I'm so glad that she, she took that stand, um, you know, and just kind of, you know, broke the barrier of and, and didn't let what her peers thought was good or bad, you know, affect what she knew in her own heart she needed to do. And up until her dying moment, um, she was still working on educating people on death. It was pretty amazing, a story which I won't get into here, but um, pretty spectacular um, how the mind and the spirit works. Um, through through that dying process, for sure. Now, um, if people are just tuning in, I, I want to just let you know who we're talking with here. We're talking with Francesca Arnoldy, and she is a community doula, an educator, 
and a published researcher, and she's the author of several different books on mortality, grief, and just healthy preparedness, you know, getting people to have this conversation and feeling comfortable with it, feeling confident with it. And you can go to her website, which is FrangescaLynnArnoldy.com, or you can email her as well. And we have all this information in the show notes for you. And next, we are going to be talking about what is, a, you know, what is a memory holder? What, what do you have to do to be, become that? And how is that helpful? But first, we're going to hear about Q-Blocks, and then we'll be right back. I also want to introduce you all to Q-Blocks. They have been absolutely excellent to deal with. They have been in business for 18 years and they serve the globe. I can't say enough good things about this company. I've had a lot of bad experiences. I don't know about you with tech companies. They have made a very complicated process very easy and their staff is so kind, so polite, so respectful to work with. And you know, when I am frustrated and ready to pull my hair out, they just smile and tell me everything's going to be okay. And they really are just on top of the communication, which alleviates so much stress as an owner when you're dealing with tech issues. You can get a 10% discount. Visit them at QBlocks at C-U-E-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com or you can email them at let's talk at qblocks.com. For that 10% discount, just put Lori, L-O-R-I, in the inquiry form. And again, I don't think you'll be disappointed. I surely haven't been. I, I can't rave enough about this company. And that's kind of rare these days. I've just found this to be just such a, a fascinating conversation and one that is so needed. So again, I, I so appreciate you taking the time to be here with us today. I like to turn tough conversations into comfortable ones and take the scary out of it. And I think you're doing a really nice job um, in, in terms of talking about this and know what the benefits and stuff are. So I want to talk about, you had mentioned being the memory holder for some of your relatives, you know, when they couldn't remember anymore, what exactly does that mean to you? And, and how can others take on that role? To me, it means that when I'm present with that person, I remember that, you know, sometimes they're not going to be able to access the other parts of their identity and those memories that we have shared together or that I know about them and that that's totally fine, but that I will silently hold that in their presence. They are a whole person with a slew of ex lived experience that has brought them up to this point. And I feel like, you know, if you go into a memory care unit, there are places where they, they might have an about me type of poster, which I think is so wonderful because it allows you to see highlights of somebody's life. And what we can do sometimes is see if that person at that moment might be able to have access to their memories, maybe through playing some music, we might be able to reestablish that or bridge that connection back to their past. And they might have stories or things that they want to share. But if not, it's fine, we can be completely present with them and find other ways to connect with my just uh, adjacent to the question. But with my grandmother, I would find that sometimes normal back and forth conversation, I think was putting too much pressure on her. 
And so I began doing things like I would color and she didn't always want to join me, which was fine, but I would try to get her involved somehow. I would ask her to pick out my next color or like, hey, this flower petal, do you think it should be green or purple? And she was involved in that way. And sometimes just because I was focused on something else other than keeping the conversation going, it allowed the conversation to actually flow more easily. Or another time I asked if she wanted to play cards and she did play cards for a little bit with me, but she wasn't really that interested again in it, which was okay. That was her choice. And I want to make sure she feels like she has a sense of agency, but her, some of the other residents in her care home asked if they could join. So by the end, I had a table full of people and we were playing Uno or whatever version of Uno was unfolding in those moments, which looked very different to your standard game of Uno. And the rules were very loose and we just went with it. And most people were fine with just going with it because it was really about being together, having some fun, laughing and just participating in something and to just normalize that and to feel like we were playing a fun game together. And that's all that really mattered, not the details. So in that way, I'm a memory holder and that I've always in the back of my mind, bring forward those memories when I'm with somebody and I hang on to them, even when they're losing sight of them. But also in the ways that I mentioned about capturing those audio interviews and creating a picture book. And then in my own life, you know, it's, it's certainly, I don't lose sight of my genetic predisposition to maybe having a higher chance of facing dementia myself in the future. Of course, I can try to do all of the things, take all of the precautionary steps, make healthy choices to hopefully avoid that, but that it could potentially be an issue for me in my future. I try not to pretend that away. And so for me in my life, I've been creating what I call my death journal for many years for my loved ones. And this is a place where I can compile a lot of beautiful memories that we have created together within my family, with my kids, with my husband, with other loved ones. So it's a repository for those memories and it's a holder of those memories and also a place where I can come and reflect on life. I can share what I've learned. I can share what hasn't gone well for me. I can share bits and pieces of myself at my core, like what makes me happy, what brings me comfort in hopes that That'll be a trip down memory lane for them. And also it might inform them as they're potentially having to offer me care later on in life. And it has my wishes in there and many contingency plans as well, depending on what's going to work best for them for times that I might need care or for the end of my life for disposition and making sure everything is sort of organized and stated as much as possible for them. And they know where it is. They know what it's for. They know when it's for. And I continue to add to it. And that was a, the main inspiration for my new book, which is the, um, the Death Doula's Guide to Living Fully and Dying Prepared. And it's an interactive workbook that encourages people to think about creating their own version of a death journal and what that might entail for them. Wow, you covered a lot of stuff there. Um, <laughs> and it, it's all powerful. I, I like when you talked about, you know, reminiscing and, and keeping the memories and that a conversation sometimes can be more stressful than not and how you encouraged her you know to partake in coloring but didn't force it because i think a lot of times people force it and nobody wants to be forced into any activity and a person with dementia isn't any different and then how it grew i remember when my mom was in a nursing home 
Oh my gosh, that played out so many times where you all of a sudden had this huge group of people. And probably the most profound time was when I was taking pictures and, you know, when it was allowed. And I, and sometimes I didn't even have um, camera when I actually had uh, or film in my camera, but it was that it was, it was taking in and being in the moment with somebody to get them to smile and say cheese. And when they, when they heard, you know, say cheese, all of a sudden they, they kind of, people started waking up around the group. And it was just fascinating how people wanted to be part, but we have to give them the opportunity to do that. And so often I think visitors um, feel so uncomfortable. I know I designed a thing called Your Memory Journal, which people can download. And all it is 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 bringing a picture with, you know, it could be a couple of words of who's in the picture. It could be about the event. It could be a whole story. It could be a poem. It doesn't make any difference. There's no right or wrong, but then sharing that with others so it can be relived and replayed, you know, bringing in joy. And I found it was, it was a way as a daughter, I learned a lot um, of things my parents did. I didn't know they did, you know, what, what um, caused them to have fun you know, because some of those things were hidden because, you know, I was a kid and they were an adult. And so they didn't want to share that with me. You know, But then you, you see it later on as a grown up and go, oh, they did cut loose sometimes, you know, <laughs> even though they were really strict with, with us as kids and stuff. And so it was just nice to learn some of those things too. And, you know, brought kind of that legacy piece um, together. The, the death journal, do you find people push back just because of the title at all, that that's a, a scary title for them? Yeah. And some people will say, well, it's about your life. Why don't you call it a life journal? And I, I push back as a death literacy advocate to say, actually, I think it's really impor important that we use that word, that we speak that word. And the main ultimate goal of this is to be a tool for my loved ones for my time of dying or for after my death, depending on if it's anticipated or not, to carry them through decision making on my behalf and as well as their grief. It's just, mm -hmm. it's so important to me. So it really is for my death. Now, I also advocate for people to have those conversations now while you can to speak these things aloud. So when my loved ones go to my death journal, they won't find secrets revealed. You know, they won't find a whole side of me that they didn't know. They'll find me, familiar me, my voice, my love, my messages, and a lot of the conversations that we have had along the way, but it's all compiled right there for them. And I've seen so many people who are deep in grief continue to yearn for that connection to their person and those final gifts, those final messages, those final words, they really do mean so much. And when they're not there, it does often feel like there's something missing. And when they are there, it can feel like a lot. Of, it can feel very comforting to people. Yeah, that that guidance of what they want from, you know, being buried or cremated or ashes spread or whatever it might be, you know, do they want a celebration of life? Do they want a formal funeral? Do they want it in the church or not? There's so many questions that are asked and you don't know what they're going to be until that moment hits, unless you have this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I remember going, you know, and doing kind of the prepaid burial things with both my folks. And I was, I, I was surprised at the questions and I shouldn't have been, but it was like, 
I was surprised, I guess, more so that we hadn't talked about it in any depth. And um, even even pulling the, the funerals together with, when both my folks passed, my brothers questioned some of the things. And I'm like, I have no question at all in my mind. I know this is what they want. We, we had this conversation. Mm-hmm. And even then there was some pushback because maybe they weren't comfortable with it. Or I use my example with my daughter, you know, I want to be cremated. And she's like, mom, I don't want you burned. And I'm like, you know, I joke with her and I'm like, let me be small one time in my life, you know, <laughs> and that's kind of my sense of humor coming out. But it's like, I don't want to take up a lot of space in this world. You know, I've done my thing and, you know, my body's there, but my my spirit is is long removed and, and I'll live on. Um, that's my belief. And mm-hmm. she'll be able to reach out to me anytime she wants. But it's just, it's really interesting having all of those all of those things. I know when I was pulling my stuff together and I need to update it because I, I said I wanted to be able to have a letter read in my voice to, to my friends and family to try to console them and to, mm-hmm. you know, let them know it's okay. I, I lived a good life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the joke was, you know, I always like the last word. <laughs> yeah. Got to get in that last word. <laughs> yeah. But I wanted something you know, public to be able to say um, to people. And who knows when that'll be. I always thought I wouldn't live past 40. Mm -hmm. And so that was really, really important to me. Here I am at 64, you know, (laughs) and still kicking. Um, But again, we don't know what our path is going to be, when it's going to happen. And we shouldn't be afraid of it. You know, we just shouldn't. And and I think the the planning and being prepared and, and knowing the process, you know, is so critically important that you that you talked about um, during this. Now, with a death journal, is that something that they can purchase from you in terms of format or do you have guidelines for that for people? How does that how does that work? Yeah, the um so my own death journal is a scrapbook and I encourage people to use what whatever format works best for them. You know, some people prefer digital and they want to type everything up or some people want to do audio recordings or video recordings. For me, I'm pretty creative. And so that multimedia, I really appreciate being able to glue things in and have different colors in there and you can see I also love things that are handwritten I feel like they're they really connect you to the person so you can see my handwriting looks different from period to period and and I have some compilation lists in there like happiness is or comfort is or a gratitude list and I've just been adding to it throughout the years and you can see that you can see that like they were bigger to begin with like I never imagined I'd be able to fill the page and now it's like little things that are just sort of squeezed into any space Um, so I think you can use whatever you have available to you to make your own death journal I also have a publication it's a lined journal called my death journal that people could purchase and it has some inspiring prompts to get you started and then the workbook is, it was published by New Harbinger and it's available through any major bookseller. And so it's an interactive workbook in the sense that there's space in there for you to write down your thoughts and your reflections as you're going through. Some people use that as their sort of first draft and brainstorming, and then they have a final version of their death journal and other people use the workbook as their one and only draft and version of it. 
Well, I, I love how you're giving people permission to do what meets their needs. Um, but I also love that you shared about the, the scrapbooking and the pictures and the hands-on because there is a whole nother layer to that. And I think a sense of comfort and a sense of progress and a sense of purpose um, that you don't always feel like with a recording like this, it's kind of a one and done thing. Okay. I'm going to say this, I've scribbled it out and I'm going to communicate this and it'll be there. But having those layers of, of showing your life and kind of how your mind thinks and um, that whole person, you know, is really showing up in that other process. And again, not that there's a right or a wrong, I think starting with any of it, it, you know, you're way ahead of your neighbors and your friends and your family members. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a huge, huge thing. Is there anything that we haven't covered that we should cover? You know, one story that came to mind as you were sharing about your own mom in honor of one of my grandmothers that recently died, the one who was deeper into dementia, it had progressed further. She didn't die from her dementia. She had a serious fall and she was injured as a result of the fall. But then my aunt who's down there, I was speaking with her and she shared with me that my grandmother told them when she was in the hospital and in moments of clarity, completely lucid, she said, I am going to die. And my aunt said she was doing this in a very gentle but clear way, trying to really prepare them for what was coming. She said, I'm not going to live any longer. I'm going to die. And she told them a number of times and and they responded to her by saying, okay, you know, we understand. We understand we're we're here for you, whatever you need. That's okay if that's what needs to happen. And so they were working on giving her permission. But it was really fascinating in the sense that she didn't technically have a terminal condition. There wasn't something happening that anybody could diagnose to say that she was in fact facing death. They were at this crossroads of making medical decisions that was really, it was a really complicated crossroads, which was avoided because in fact, as she said, she transitioned into active dying within a matter of two days following that. Now they had a hard time getting hospice on board because again, she had no terminal diagnosis, no condition that would point toward that she was dying. But once she had been fully deeply asleep, not to awake again for a couple of days, hospice recognized that yes, in fact, she was at the end of her life and she was able to receive some of that care for her final maybe day or two. But just really interesting. There's so much mystery there at the end of life, but she was so clear. And this was the grandmother that I had that conversation with where she said, yes, I will die someday. And she had that clear, gentle clarity then. And she carried that into her her last day or two that she was actually awake and communicative, which I just find really powerful. Yeah, I remember my um, my husband's mom knew she wouldn't be at our wedding. And she, you know, she was sick. She had um, asthma and emphysema, but, you know, she was on her oxygen and doing fine. And she said, no, I, I know I won't make it. And you know, but welcome me to the family and blah, 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 blah. And I thought that was really interesting. And she was, she was right. You know, she died in, um, I want to say it was May and we got married in November. And my mom 
was not very communicative because um, she was in her very end stages, but she would come to me in dreams. And so she, I, I totally think she planned her death and she planned what was going to happen to me during that whole dying process months in advance. Like she woke me up one night and said, Laura, you need to finish my obit. And I, at two in the morning, I'm like, okay, you know, nudge, nudge. doing that. And, um, and then she told me, you know, I'm not going to be there when she dies. And I'm like, oh, what do you wow. mean? I I'm that person. I I'm the transitioner. I'm, I'm, I'm always there for people. And she said, Nope, I need to know you're going to continue the work that we've developed. And the rest of the family has to step up to the plate and be part of the dying process. And if you are there, they won't. And so what was beautiful, and I know my listeners have heard this before, but it's just such a cool story. I was expecting to communicate with my family by phone. My brother thought I was having a nervous breakdown. My, my daughter totally understood because we were with grandma all the time and they weren't so much. And um, I went to, to fly out and she had everything set up. The guy on the plane next to me uh, his father-in-law just moved into their house and he had dementia. So that's all we talked about. I went to baggage claim and my daughter calls and says, I think this might be it. And I said, okay, put grandma on the phone. And I thought I would just say my last goodbye by phone. And she said, how about if we FaceTime? And I, that didn't even occur to me, didn't even occur to me at all. So here I am at baggage claim, you know, talking to my mom, get, saying what I thought at that point was going to be my, my last goodbye. And I get done. And then a woman next to me hands me a, a Kleenex and says, I don't know if you know this, she said, but I sat across the aisle from you and my mom had dementia too. And I wish I would have known you back then. And so mom had all of these people set up my whole trip. It was just unbelievable. And I missed nothing. You know, I was there for last rites. I could guide my family on how to care for her um, because hospice isn't there like they were there when my dad died. You know, families were really pretty much on their own and you could get a call in maybe because of short staffed and all of that kind of stuff. And so um, it, it ended up being a beautiful process. And I, I, you know, like I said, I could still see her take her last breath when that moment came and it was incredible, but I, I truly believe she set it all up. It, it couldn't have been any more perfect. Um, Amazing. It, for me to give comfort and still meet her goal. You know, I had these two keynotes, so she knew I was still carrying that out. It was very purposeful. It, 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 that's how I look at it. And some people might think I'm nuts and what a coincidence. That's not how I look at it at all. Amazing. Yeah. My grandmother was far when she was dying, the picture book inspiration grandmother. And, but I still felt like I wanted to be a part of it. And my aunt had said, if anybody wanted to call. And so I called and I was able to share my final words and my gratitude in her ear. And then I read a book. So I've done this sometimes while vigiling with people when they're active actively dying and I read the velveteen rabbit from cover to cover aloud just so that I could spend some time with her and be there with her and feel like I was a part of it and offer hopefully a presence that felt comforting and familiar to her during that time and then with my other grandmother with my Lela she also was not terminally ill and something we still don't really know we will never know what really was happening but we got a call early in the morning that we needed to come in 
to her care home. And by the time we got there, she was actively dying. And we felt certainly underprepared for what we were walking into. But because of my doula work, walking into a birth or vigiling as a hospice volunteer or working with people who are deep in grief, I know to sort of check any assumptions, expectations at the door and show up curious, ready, open, and available. And we got to be with her for her final hours. And it was incredible and sacred and, you know, heartbreaking and beautiful. And we felt so connected and what an honor it was to be there for her and with her and what an honor it was for me to to be there for my mom who was losing her own mother and to have these three generations of women at that moment. And it was just, I mean, I still feel like I'm absorbing the lessons from both of those deaths and I will continue to and carry forward what I have learned in my own walk and in my own work as well. The one thing that really throws me for a loop is how fearful people are of death. And to me, it is so sacred and so beautiful and such an honor, like you said, to be part of that and so life-changing and comforting, all wrapped in. And not that you don't feel the grief, but it is just such a powerful, powerful moment in time that I think people are missing out on. And it would give them great comfort after the fact if they were present. Right. I feel like nothing was left unsaid. Nothing was left undone. I have no regrets. And that can really weigh you down in your time of grief. Now, sometimes it's conditions beyond your control, of course, and you can't make it there, but maybe you wanted to. Or, But sometimes it is because of fear that we hold back and we don't step in and we don't show up. I, I know my, my ex-husband, he when his dad died, he was in a tanning booth and he, he'll never forgive himself for that. And yet they didn't know that he was dying. And, you know, every year that date, that time, he, he just goes into great grief mm. and guilt. Mm-hmm. And it's just, and, and, you know, I don't think that's the purpose that anybody wants when they leave this planet either. Mm. Right. Um, you know, they want them to, to be able to have comfort with that. Well, this has just been such a, a wonderful, wonderful conversation. We have been talking with Francesca Lynn Arnoldy, who is a doula, a researcher, an author, and just an advocate on death and dying. I mean, it's just, you know, taking the scary out, raising awareness that, you know, we are all going to have to deal with this. So stop denying it. This has just been such a, a wonderful conversation. She's got great resources that we've talked about. And again, we'll point you in the direction in the show notes to um, get to her website. She's got some articles. She's got a YouTube channel. She's on Instagram and Facebook. Um, And then she's got these beautiful books uh, that you can purchase as well. So as always, I ask our audience to be a giver of hope, like, click and share, spread the word of this, get this conversation bubbling to the top. It it doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be shameful. It doesn't have to be grief filled. It can be really hopeful and really comforting um, to be able to have these conversations and really know what does somebody want. To me, that takes the scary out of the potential that, again, you might have to be making some decisions and not know answers to. And I don't think there's anything worse than that. Mm. Um, guessing on how to wrap somebody's life up you know, am I doing this right? You don't want that hanging over your head. And as an individual with her death journal, 
you can give people a great gift um, by pulling that together for them. So not only do they have to remember your words, but you've got it written down or it's on video or audio that can be really reassuring and comforting to your family and friends uh, that are left behind. So again, thank you all so much um, for your time today. And, um, you know, keep us posted as your, as your books roll out. This is, uh, you're just doing a fantastic job on a real important topic, Francesca. So thank you. Thank you, Lori. Thank you for creating this community and the opportunity for me to reminisce about my loved ones and to share about my work. I really appreciate it. Again, I would encourage people to check out Dementia Map, the global resource directory, and then Alzheimer's Speaks, all of our free educational resources there as well. Until next time, bye-bye. Well, hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.